Good afternoon, and welcome to Praxis Peace Institute's Planetary Pause series. This is a special uh, four-part series on economics that we've been hosting in October, and this is the last program on that series. I'm Georgia Kelly, the director of Praxis, and today we are very excited to host a Praxis favorite, Richard Wolff. He is a Marxist economist and professor emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and a visiting professor at the New School, New York. He has also taught at Yale University, City University of New York, and the Sorbonne in Paris. He has a master's in economics from Stanford University and a PhD in economics from Yale. He is the author of several books, including Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism, and Economics, Marxian versus Neoclassical. He hosts a weekly radio show on WBAI in New York, and it's carried on Pacifica nationwide. His new book, or it was the new, newest book, The Sickness of the System is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics and Itself, is available from our local bookstore as well as others. And we'll be covering, covering a, a bunch of topics today from labor to what's happening with the American empire to some of the ideas that were presented in this book, The Six Sickness is the System. So welcome, Richard. We're just delighted to have you with us today. Well, thank you very much, Georgia. Uh, I remember fondly my last time in Sonoma, and hopefully we'll get back to that place in this society where we can do those things. But I appreciate your invitation, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, we hope to host you back here live again. And that would be wonderful. So you wrote in your book, The Sickness is the System, that there are three economic problems that capitalism has never been able to solve. And I think it would be a good place to begin to have you explain those three problems that are systemic to capitalism and how they have prevented an appropriate response to the COVID pandemic. Sure. Um, I should say before I start my answer, that to find flaws or faults or inadequacies in capitalism doesn't mean anything all that extraordinary. Or let me be better able to say it shouldn't. Every economic system that the human race has uh, involved itself in has had people who think it's wonderful and think it should last forever and people who are critical and don't think it should last for better for forever, and who believe that the human race could do better. I mean, for a while, people lived in little villages in a very primitive way. They didn't want to stay that way, and they found ways to change those societies. It wasn't that those societies were all terrible. It wasn't that they were all wonderful. They were mixed. And people thought they could hold on to the good parts and do better in overcoming the bad parts. And the same is true of slavery, and the same is true of feudalism, and there's no problem, or there shouldn't be, in making the same comments about capitalism. But we all live in the United States. I've lived all my life here. I was born in Ohio, and I have lived and worked in this country all my life. So I know, and I can tell from some of your gray hairs like I have, that you've been around a long time too, and you know as well as I do that thinking about what's wrong with capitalism has not been, how shall I put it, uh, a favored activity of people. 
it gets you into trouble. It makes people look at you in funny ways. Um, if they're really nasty, they call you all kinds of names, all the rest of it. And so for me to say in answer to George's perfectly good question, here are some of the flaws and failures of capitalism really shouldn't surprise anyone that we have those problems. Uh, but maybe it would be useful to kind of focus in on what they are and then connect them to COVID. All right, so here's the first one in no particular order. Capitalism is an extraordinarily unstable economic system. What do I mean? Wherever capitalism has settled in as the economic system, and that we usually start that around the 17th century in England and spreading from there to the rest of Europe and then eventually to the whole world. Capitalism as a system, wherever it has settled, has had a history of economic breakdowns. They have a whole host of names, crash, boom, bust, recession, depression, business cycle. I could go on. Lots of names, all for the same thing. This peculiar quality that every four to seven years, every four to seven years, that's the average, this system tanks. Suddenly, large numbers of people are thrown out of work. Suddenly, large businesses of all sizes go belly up or contract. Suddenly, the government which needs more money in these downturns to help people get through them, discovers it has less money because everybody unemployed and all businesses collapsing mean there's less taxes being paid into the government. So the system crashes every four to seven years and then hobbles itself in terms of the government helping to get us out. As I explain this to my students, I conclude with the following line, which they seem to enjoy. If you lived with a person as unstable as capitalism, you would have moved out long ago. So capitalism is very unstable. And over the decades, everything in the world has been tried to overcome this instability because capitalists, too, are frightened by it. They don't want the economy to fall apart every four to seven years. That's not good for business either. So here we are in a society where almost everyone agrees these periodic downturns are terrible. We don't want them. And yet we suffer them. And all these smart people, including a very famous British economist who developed a whole new economics to deal with the instability, his name, John Maynard Keynes from England. Despite all these brilliant people trying every which way to overcome this problem, we haven't done it. The system's intrinsic instability is as present with us as it ever was. Just to give you an illustration, we've had 21 years of this new century. Let's review the crashes. In the early months of 20, uh, 2000, we had something called the dot-com crash. You may remember it. In 2008, we had the subprime mortgage crash. You may remember that. And in the year 2020, we had the COVID-19 crash. You surely remember that. 
three crashes, 21 years, right on schedule. Every four to seven years, the system tanks. This is not a virtue. This is a flaw. This is a failure. This is a quality of this system that any rational person would take to heart as a serious defect. But it's only one. I got two more to go. Here's the second one. This is a system that systematically breeds inequality. And there's a hundred ways for me to say this to you, but let me give you a few. The richest 1% of the American uh, people has more wealth, if you add it up, than the bottom 90%. Let me just do that again. The top 1% has more wealth than the bottom 90%. I could do the same thing on a global scale because capitalism is a global system and global inequality is just like America. I mean, not the exact numbers, but roughly the same as U.S. inequality. In 1945, at the end of World War II, the United States was a less unequal society than Europe. Today, we have the dubious distinction of having reversed all of that. We are now the most unequal society in the advanced capitalist world. It's an extraordinary development. We have, over the last few weeks, witnessed what is really kind of stunning. The American people, millions of them, were mesmerized when the two richest men in the U.S., Elon Musk and Jeffrey Bezos, spent tens, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars in order to fly for eight minutes or so in a rocket ship. This is at the same time that roughly 40 million Americans are anxiously wondering where they will live when the ban on evictions that has saved them expires and the brilliance of our system on Halloween night is when it expires. Okay, extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary inequality of wealth. Musk and Bezos each have personal wealth of, ready, $200 billion each. That's more wealth than many countries dispose of in their annual GDP. At the same time, we have a population in which surveys by the Federal Reserve indicate that for approximately 40% of our people, an unexpected expense of $400 could not be met by any cash reserves that they possess, that they would have to sell something of their holding in their house. You know, maybe their car, maybe some furniture, maybe grandma, who knows, in order to get by. And for a, an unexpected expense of $1,000, more than half the population of this country cannot do it without selling assets. That is, they have no 
bank account, no savings account, no anything. This is absolutely extraordinary. But here is perhaps the most extraordinary part. Inequality has been growing without interruption for at least the last 40 years, 40, four zero. During that time, a growing number of people have commented, and these are people who are very wealthy themselves, that this is an unsustainable reality, that this is not going to be tolerated by the American people. I could quote you many, but I, the most famous is the remark by Warren Buffett that he is outraged that his secretary has a higher rate of income tax than he pays on his income. Why is this going to be such a danger for the system? Because after World War II, in the struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union, the single most important defense of capitalism that was ever put forward was the notion that capitalism creates a middle class. It creates a standard of living that is the envy of the rest of the world, and that therefore it's like the famous tide that lifts all the boats. And so capitalism's justification was, yes, we are unequal, but we really take care of the mass of our people. A society that for half a century has defended and justified itself based on what I just said is in terrible danger if it suddenly pulls the rug out from under that middle class. And let me remind you that everyone from Donald Trump to Joseph Biden to to Barack Obama and anyone else has run for office talking about the disappearing middle class and what they propose to do to uh, save it or to reconnect it or something like that. They've all promised it, and absolutely none of them have ever done anything like it. So our inequality keeps getting worse. And that is dividing our society. It is causing levels of political dysfunction uh, that we haven't seen in a long time and that many of us thought had disappeared from American politics, but are now very much alive. The third, and the list is longer, but... You know, uh, I'm going to be honoring George's request for three, and I don't want to take too much of our time. So here's the third one. It has to do with democracy. Democracy is something that the United States has been saying for a long time is definitional. We are a democracy. We refer to ourselves as a democracy. Well, I don't know about you, but if you look it up in the dictionary, Democracy is usually defined more or less as follows. It's an arrangement in which people who are affected by a decision have the right to participate in making it. In other words, it's the opposite of autocracy, 
where some subgroup of the community is uh, entitled to make decisions that affect everybody, but the people who are affected have no say, have no right to participate, right? We got rid, I mean, we, the human race, we got rid of monarchy and kingdoms some centuries ago because the kings were autocrats. They made decisions, you know, like going to war, for example, uh, that affected everybody, but nobody voted for the king. Nobody had any input into what the king did or didn't do. And we got rid of that, and we substituted a procedure, elections, representation, all of that, that was at least a step in democratic direction. Okay. Here in the United States, from the beginning, both before the Revolutionary War and afterwards when we became an independent country, we have not allowed democracy into the workplace. Never. When you cross the threshold into your office, your store, your factory, if you're a worker, which the vast majority of people who cross such thresholds are, you give up your democracy when you enter. The employer, who is typically the owner of the business, or the partners who run it, or the board of directors, if it's a corporation, are a tiny minority of all the people involved in that enterprise, in that workplace. But you, the majority, the worker, are told what to do, how to do it, where to do it, when to do it, and at the end of the workday, whatever you've helped to produce belongs to the employer. Your job is to go home, have two beers and a pizza, or two pizzas and a beer, and get ready to do it all tomorrow. In other words, you have no say. You don't vote for the employer. You have no input to change the employer's decisions. In fact, the only thing you can do in the face of an employer who dictates to you is quit and then go work for another employer who will have exactly the same position in relationship to you. Where do most adults spend most of their adult life? Answer, in a workplace. So we're not talking about a small sliver of our people, we're talking about the vast majority. Spend five out of seven days, the best hours of those days, in the workplace, which is a fundamentally undemocratic arrangement. So if I were blunt, and I'm trying not to be, I would say that the claim of the United States to be a paragon of democracy is, to use a technical term in economics, bullshit. Okay, that's the, that's the truth of it. So those are three minor details. Instability, inequality, and anti or non-democratic. Once you understand that, it shouldn't be difficult to imagine that there are people who see these qualities and who reach the conclusion that the human race can do better than capitalism, and the only mystery is why they haven't already done that. Which brings me to the next question. <laughs> uh, I have seven, which I'm not going to get to them all because you answered three of them in, in your response. 
to my last one, but I wanted to mention before I go to the next question um, that we both know one of the answers to that uh, are cooperatives where the workers have a democratic position of voting, one person, one vote. And I know you've been to the Mondragon cooperatives in Spain. We're bringing another group there in May. And uh, we have cooperatives all over the U.S. They don't get much press, though. This is unfortunate. But uh, we do have them in Sonoma County and in the Bay Area as well. And they are democratically run. So I know you know about that. But I wanted to ask you, because this brings us up to uh, what you said in your response, that right after World War II, we had the lowest level of inequality that we probably ever had in this country. But quickly on the heels of that and the New Deal, which brought us to that uh, level of equality, were the repercussions and the backlash, which came with the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947. And uh, this was accompanied a few years later by the McCarthy witch hunts, how this all worked together in a way to completely roll back what happened in the New Deal, make socialism and communism words you wouldn't dare mention in polite society. So what do you see changing now with people like AOC, Bernie Sanders, uh, Jacobin Magazine, all these different places where we hear about democratic socialism? How do you think that the the um, people's impression of socialism is changing now? Well, first of all, it's a great question. And, and let me only add before I answer that I'm part of that, too. I mean, here I've been a professor of economics all my adult life. I've been a critic of capitalism from the time I sat in my university classes, would ask questions about socialism. And this happened to me. I mean, I'm a product of America's elite institutions. I went to Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. For 10 years of my life, 20 consecutive semesters, I was entrapped, excuse me, enrolled in these institutions, okay? And I had a best an education as they thought they could give me. And when I would raise my hand in class and ask about capitalism and socialism, I rarely got an answer. But that wasn't what struck me. What struck me was the fear in the faces of my teachers. Their, uh, they didn't say it, but their eyes were saying to me, please don't go there. Let's not talk about that. Could you please ask another question? And some of these teachers were very good teachers, and I appreciated them. Others were not so good. But what they all had in common was, I don't want to go there. This is a, and it wasn't out of anything other than fear. So let me be clear with you. 20 semesters, Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. And I never once was assigned a serious reading of any critic of capitalism, with one semester's exception. My first semester at Stanford, as it happened, down in Palo Alto, I had a teacher named Paul Baran. Some of you may have heard of him, B-A-R-A-N. He died long ago. But he was interested. He gave us something to read. One semester out of 20. And if I hadn't have had him... I would have had zero out of 20, right? So how did I learn my Marxism? I did it on my own. With other students, we made little reading groups, we studied, we asked each other questions, and that's how you learn. And anybody can do that. And you still have to do it 
because in case you're not familiar, the overwhelming majority of economics departments in American universities, as I'm speaking, do not include courses that present you with Marxism, do not hire professors who are competent and want to teach it. It is an extraordinary period of American history that I'm sure historians in the future will look black, uh, look back, that was an interesting slip, look black on the this weird period here, 1945, basically to the last few years. But having said that, and let me make it clear, you wouldn't have invited me, you wouldn't know who I am if I were just someone interested in Marxian economics. I've been able to teach all my life in major American universities, but that was in spite of my Marxism, not because of it. I got hired and I've worked through many a difficulty in my life by waving my pedigree. I went to Harvard. I went to Stanford. I went to Yale. And Americans react to that the way the famous devil does if you wave the garlic. They back away, they are afraid, and they leave me alone, which is all I ask. So over the last decade, and it really is a decade, from a roughly 2011 to now, so 10 years, everything changed. Before that, I would get invited to do a media presentation, maybe once every three months. And the, the host would not behave the way Georgia did. They would begin as follows. Today, ladies and gentlemen, I have, and then with various words that amounted to one of those. And as soon as that was said, the host or hostess would pack, uh, pat himself or herself on the back and say, aren't I wonderfully over uh, open-minded to have one of those on my pro? In other words, the host or hostess was inoculating or maybe these days I should say, vaccinating the audience lest they be infected by the evil Marxism that might come out of my mouth. And then everything changed. And for me, it was crystal clear what it was. The Great Recession, as it came to be called, the crash of 2008 and nine, was devastating to millions and millions of Americans. And suddenly, everybody wanted to talk about what might be wrong with capitalism, given how devastating. And remember, the crash in 2008 was the second worst in American history, second only to the Great Depression of the 1930s. So it opened a space. And instead of being invited to do media interviews once every three months, I currently do four to five per day. It is uh, 7.30 here in Manhattan where I'm sitting, and you are my fifth and my final, thank God, today. Most of them lasting anywhere from the short 15 minutes on over to an hour and a half and everything uh, in between. Uh, and, you know, the interesting thing is, Socialism is now a perfectly okay topic. Criticizing capitalism is something people ask me to do. They don't say, what would you like to talk about? And I come up with it. 
It's much better. They want to do it. I mean, it, it is a completely new world for people like me, as it is for Bernie and AOC and all of that. I am called regularly by a whole host of people who call themselves socialists and are running for office all over the United States and want me to help them write a pamphlet or advise them on an economic proposal they want to make, which I do. I'm happy to do. Uh, you know, I had relationships like that with, with AOC and with uh, um, Bernie as well over the years on and off. So we are all being carried by some very big shift in American life. None of us quite know what started it. We have our guesses. What we do know is that for 10 years now, and by the way, when this first started back in 2011, I thought it would be lucky if this continued for six months. Then I thought it would be lucky if it lasted a couple of years. Now I've relaxed into it. It's 10 years old, and there's no sign that it stops. Let me give you other indices. You all know what a YouTube subscriber is. If you go in there and you check the little box and you get notified whenever we put something up on YouTube. Well, we just crossed 250,000 YouTube subscribers for the channel that we operate. Quarter of a million people want to be notified every time we post a video. I do this weekly show that you can get everywhere in, Cal in California, Economic Update. It is broadcast on a 100 radio station, and it goes out over four different TV networks where it goes into 55 million American homes a weekly dose of criticism of capitalism. What's going on here? You know, it's, it's overwhelming. It's more than I can do. I can't do it as an individual. So the democracy at work is now a group. And we have to raise money to pay two full-time, two half-time, and two contract workers because it's six of us plus me that are now doing this work. And we just hired the seventh because we can't accommodate the invitations and the opportunities. So for me, here's what I think. I think the United States is like the proverbial hibernating bear. We have been hibernating for 75 years. No bear could have survived. But the United States for those 75 years pretended that socialism was a terrible evil that only a small number of people very far away, like in Russia and China and stuff like that, uh, were perverse enough to do. And they only did it because a handful of really evil folks forced them to. This charade, this fakery survived. It survived the most amazing evidence to the contrary. And I might mention it because it's important. Every European country has had active socialists in its political life for the last 75 years. And it hasn't destroyed any of them, has it? Three weeks ago, there was the latest election, national election in Germany, arguably the most powerful country within the European Union. When the dust cleared, the largest party by vote was the German Socialist Party, 
Americans know that Angela Merkel was the leader in Germany. What they don't know is she never got a majority of the votes. In order to govern, she had to have a coalition with other parties. Sorry about that. They want you to do another show. Yeah, for sure. Angela Merkel had to be in a coalition. You know who her coalition partner was, without which she couldn't have been the, the, the leader of Germany? The German Socialist Party. Let me give you another example. Portugal, an old and established country in Europe. It has a government now, which is a coalition of three parties. And I won't embarrass you by asking how many of you know or knew what the governing coalition in Portugal has been. Elected in 2016 and re-elected with a bigger plurality in 2020. It's a coalition of three parties. Here we go. Number one, the Portuguese Socialist Party. Number two, the Portuguese Communist Party. And number three, the Portuguese Green Party. Hallelujah. Not at all unusual. None of those things are unusual, except here, where we live in a fantasy that that isn't happening around the world, even though it is, and it always has been. So we're just catching up. We're catching up late. We're catching up slowly. And the kind of socialism, and this is not a criticism, but the kind of socialism that Bernie and AOC and Cori Bush and all the others are putting forward is the mildest, moderatist socialism imaginable. But that's to be understood because, you know, you're making up for all the make-believe of 75 years and you don't want to drop someone in a cold shower. You want to kind of get them into it gradually so they, they don't get too scared given the fear that has lined uh, behind this. I've discovered that if I explain what's wrong with capitalism and I explain what socialism at least means to me and why we'd be better off saying thank you to capitalism for what you achieved and it achieved things, but we can do better and this is how I think we should do it, starting with the democratization of every enterprise, I find the overwhelming majority of the people I encounter are perfectly comfortable with talking about this, with thinking about it. They have varying ideas of how attractive they find it. But this is not uh, an unpleasant conversation. This is, this is exploring together what it means to be a critic of capitalism and want to do better. And in the last point, in my classes, I teach it this way. I say to my students, imagine that a teacher gave you an assignment. And the assignment was to go and interview the family that lives up the street. And here's what we know. There's a mother, there's a father, and there's two children. One of the children thinks they're so lucky to have been born into this family. It is so nurturing. It is so warm. It is so welcoming. And the other child bemoans the fact that he or she was born into a family that he or she calls a psychological basket case. Okay. If you were assigned to do an understanding, a paper on this family, would you talk to only one of the two children? Either one, but just one. And all the students shake their head, no. Why? 
because they understand that any rational person would go up there, interview mom and pop, then interview the two children, and draw your own conclusions from the different perspectives all of them have on this thing they call the family. Any honorable, honest consideration of capitalism should always have included those who love it, by all means, and those who don't, those whose approach is celebratory and those whose approach is critical. In courses in economics that have the component history of economic thought, students are regularly given Adam Smith and David Ricardo, who are considered the founders of modern economics. But the third name that comes right after Smith and Ricardo is Karl Marx, because he was the founder of a critical approach. Any reasonable teacher would say, if you're going to study the field, then begin by looking at the celebrants and the critics, and then follow that through and see how these different approaches evolved over time. We live in a society, unlike those in Europe, again, where this has simply not been done. It just simply hasn't been done. We have lived in a fantasy that the economics we practice here is the only kind. The textbooks I had to use as a professor didn't call themselves pro-capitalist economics textbook. They didn't have any adjective. They called the textbook economics. You know what that's like? That's like having a program in religion where all you're taught is the Baha'i religion until you raise your hand and say, I'm happy to learn about Baha'i, but you should have called it a Baha'i course, not a course in religion, because you've given us only one part of what is a larger field of study. The same is true of economics, and we're only now coming out of it. But here's the interesting thing. The young people, and it's mostly them, I have to be honest with you, It's mostly our audience at Democracy at Work, our organization. I mean, our audience is three quarters, 35 years of age and younger. They are not, they didn't experience the Cold War. They never went through McCarthyism. These are vague notions of a history that seems eons ago. And so none of that stuff holds them back. They find their parents' reticence about these subjects, quaint, odd, but in no way holding them back. So I am here to tell you, not only do I have a bigger audience for what I do than I've ever had in my life, it's not just the quantity, it's the quality. When I first started out, if someone raised their hand and said, I have a question about socialism, three out of four times, They wanted to give me a speech about how Stalin killed people or how Mao killed people or somebody who was socialist killed somebody, which is they wanted me to to know all about and talk to them about. Now, when the hand goes up and I want to talk to you about socialism, here's the basic question I'm asked. What is it? Why are all those conservatives bent out of shape against it? These are the right questions 
for me to be asked. So it's an extraordinary time. And I don't mind telling you that I am having the time of my life doing this. I never imagined that I would live long enough in this country to see what I am now in the middle of experiencing. It is a very heady process. That's why you have to live a long time, because there's a lot a lot more decades that we have to be witnessing this and helping it birth. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned that I think is so important, and I do want to go to audience questions shortly. Um, you said you had to educate yourself about socialism and about the, the economics that wasn't in the acceptable realm of, of capitalist thought. And, you know, that's something I learned very young too. And what we had in, a, in conjunction with Stanford was the free university in Palo Alto. And a lot of what I learned, in fact, I read Das Kapital to be in one of those classes. And it was way beyond me, you know, at that time, but it was, but it really helped frame other questions and and ask things of people who are you know working in that field or teaching the free university courses. And I think what we try to do today with Praxis is do the same thing as a free university. These are constant teach-ins where people can learn more about thoughts we don't get in not only in college because we don't get them in a lot of courses, we don't get them in the mainstream media either. So that's what we try to do at Praxis is educate about ideas that are out very often not given enough space and to go deeply into them but but, you know it's not fair it meant that people like me had to take time away from the the curriculum that we were assigned get get ready to pass the exams we had to pass to get our phds and all the rest we had to make time take it away from those activities which our regular fellow students focused on in order to learn this other stuff for which there was no reward for, uh, other than what you learned, but there was no external uh, kind of reward. But the end result is very rewarding because I ended up knowing the Marxian position as well as the neoclassical, that's the name of the mainstream economics in the United States, and the Keynesians. In fact, one of the books I wrote is a book that compares Marxian with the mainstream with Keynesian systematically. And that book is now used all around the United States for teaching. It was published by the MIT uh, University Press, which are very prestigious in economics, which is why we chose it. Uh, but the world is changing. Students want to learn this kind of stuff. Uh, and the opportunity for us is really, I have to say, extraordinary uh, at this moment. And don't worry if you have young people that you can influence. Teach yourselves. You learn a lot more, just as, as Georgia just said. You learn a lot more than you think you do. Just like in the regular class, you learn a lot less than you think you do uh, a lot of the time. And for me, uh, I am very, very grateful that I had the students. You know, I don't know if I would have been able to do it all on my own. But having at least a half a dozen other students that would do it with me most of the time, you know, it's like getting to a class. If other people are there, kind of they depend on you, you on them. And it's a bit more of a discipline to do it. And and you can do amazing things and, and they will have big impact uh, on you. My classmate at Yale getting the PhD at exactly the same time uh, that I did 
was a woman, and there were very, very few women uh, in the economics at that time. But you've heard of her name. Her name is Janet Yellen, right? So I know exactly what she learned because she sat in the same classes as I did, following the same curriculum as I did, in the classrooms with the same teachers that I had. But she never came to any of those study groups. She wasn't interested. And there you go. She's busy justifying the system, and I'm busy criticizing it. And that separation happened in our years of schooling, and things could have gone in very different ways, but that's how how they evolved. Right. Uh, I think I want to go to some questions now because I don't want to take up more time um, with mine. So does anyone in the group here want to ask or make a comment? Okay, uh, John? Uh, yeah. So, John, your, your volume's low. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So I just wanted to ask what you see the biggest – I mean this is all very heartening as, as a young person who was always – confused at my parents you know freaking out at it ideas like handouts and oh my god um you know they want to do ubi and stuff like that. that that was always the freakiest thing to them and i just never understood it but um i want to ask what you think the biggest threat to this ideological progression is you know manufactured consent is it's stuff like social media um you know uh is it apathy you know, uh, just your thoughts on the biggest threats to uh, this progression that you've noticed in the past decade. Okay, great question. Um, and let me forewarn you, you know, like certain television shows or movies, you're now going to see something X-rated, so you might want to change the channel or something like that. So what I'm about to tell you is my view, um, but it may be a, a little bit um, distressing uh, for you. Since I don't see the basic contours of American capitalism changing, given the pressures that have been there for change in the last 25 years that have not resulted in the change that might have saved our situation, I'm looking at an American capitalism now that is very different from anything I have seen in the rest of my life. And so let me tell you a quick story. Because I went to all the elite universities, I periodically get together with some of the other graduates, particularly of, of my graduate program at Yale. And they are very well known. I won't mention the names, but I already told you Janet Yellen, but the others, it's a lot like that. And, you know, I'm the black sheep. I'm, I'm the weird one who went off in this leftist direction and all the rest. Uh, so they know me because I'm odd in that circle. But we get together every now and then for coffee or beer or something. And uh, here's what the last two or three times we've gotten together produced. And it struck all of us as remarkable. I should tell you that the group in group doesn't agree on what caused the current situation in the American economy. And they do not agree. We do not agree on how to get out of it. But here's what blew our minds. We all agree without knowing it in advance, on the following sentence. This is the worst condition of the American economy in our lifetimes. Wow. And we kind of looked at each other, amazed that we all agreed on that, even though we disagreed on so much else that was under discussion. So what's the biggest obstacle 
Well, the biggest obstacle right now is that we continue in the same direction that we're going now, because I don't think this society can survive. And what I mean by that is that the divisions we already have now, whether you look at the the Trump presidency or the January 6th events or the resurgence of uh, white supremacy or the Black Lives Matter demonstrations after George Floyd or a long list of other things you all know about. This is a country splitting apart. The right wing believes, particularly because so many of them are white males, not all, but many, they believe they are being pushed out of their historical position. And mostly, I think they're right. They are. They don't have those positions they once did. And they feel threatened. And they feel their word, by the way, the great replacement. We're being replaced by immigrants by non-white people, by female people, by all those folks who vote democratic, etc. And they're furious, and they're bitter, and they've hoped for change by doing, behaving in new ways. That's why they gave the presidency to Mr. Trump. They hoped he would change things, as he promised to do. He didn't. Everything he did was symbolic. The basic economic dilemma of this group of people has not been improved. That's why it's so easy for them to transfer their rage onto a focus against Mr. Biden as the sum total of evil. This this elderly gentleman from the tiny state of Delaware who has been quiet and comfortable all of his life is being made into a demon. That's bizarre. Or to take the most recent form, if the government is evil, if the government is doing all this bad stuff to you, well, then you don't need the government. You don't want the government. You won't let the government um, mandate a mask or mandate a vaccine. Think with me for a minute the sadness of this. This is a symbolic act of no against whoever is destroying our life. Not wearing a mask isn't going to do anything about that. Not getting vaccinated isn't either. It's a desperate act of unhappy, abused people who don't know where to turn to understand what's happening to them and so buy into what demagogic politicians will tell them about the evil government. If you want the best example, it's in England. It's not here. England has been ruled for most of the last decade by the conservatives. The conservatives ruled in England, which was much worse damaged by the crash of 2008 than the United States was. Real wages in Britain dropped by 10 to 15 percent in the decade after 2008, much worse than what happened here. The British working class was savaged. Wow. And what did the conservatives do? It's the fault, not of their, of the government in England, because that was them. They wouldn't turn the rage of the people against themselves. But they had another government they could put in the bad seat. The Europeans. And so the working class voted for Brexit. 
voted to separate England from the continent for which it was a small, wet, cold offshore island. This doesn't solve a problem in Britain. The British economy is in worse shape now than before Brexit, which everyone, even their Trump clone uh, prime minister, admits. Wow. Angry, bitter people strike out at whatever might be the cause of their problem. I don't see anything happening in the United States that changes that. The Trump phenomena continues. And it will, whether Mr. Trump is there or not. There are people waiting in the wings to be the next Trump. And you know most of them, Pence, Cruz, uh, and, the, and you can go on from all of them. So I think that the, the, one of the biggest problems is the continuous impossibility of this capitalism continuing the inequality, which keeps getting worse, the instability, which has not been dealt with, and the splitting of the country, which makes it harder and harder. And last point, these are all symptoms of what historians tell us happens when empires end. And let me close with that on this point. The United States, and I say this to you as an economist, for the first time in a century, the United States has a real, serious economic competitor. You know, World War I ended that issue. The United States emerged top of the heap. The two potential challengers, Britain and Germany, had defeated themselves in that war. They were no match. The Japanese tried a little bit. They came too little, too late, and they were wiped out in World War II. And the United States, top of the pile, top of the heap. The Soviet Union, whatever you think of it, was never an economic competitor of the United States. Much too poor, much too underdeveloped. They couldn't do it. They never could. And nobody who's ever been uh, involved in real economic uh, history would imagine. But that is no longer true. I am not arguing for or against, but the People's Republic of China is a new, real phenomena for the United States. It's a new competitor. Americans cannot get their heads around it. I understand it. Nobody wants to live in the empire when it's declining. It's a lot of fun when it's going up. It is not a lot of fun when it comes down. It's like certain drugs, a very different experience going up and coming down. Let me give you just a couple of examples so you understand. One of the most important economic tools in the world today is rapid trains, trains that go a couple hundred miles an hour, that cut down the time to go from one city to another for a person or for cargo. That changes the pricing dynamic of everything because it is cheaper and easier to have people meet and to have goods move. It's going to be in a significant part of the global competition in the years ahead. The world has quite a, a long track of really fast trains. Two thirds of the world's fast trains are located 
in the People's Republic of China. Zero in the United States. I could give you many more examples. Just think about that one. The fastest thing we have is the train that runs from Boston to Washington, D.C., the Acela, which I have taken many times. It is not a fast train. It's faster than the usual trains in the United States, but it doesn't compare with the TGV, if you know what that is in Europe, or the fast trains uh, in China. You can't do this. Most of the, the vast majority of, of cities that are large, of one million or more, are in People's Republic of China. They keep building cities before they move the people in so that the cities are rationally organized in relationship to the transportation, in relationship to the different neighborhoods and different kinds of work that people have. The whole urban reality is fundamentally different and organized. The Chinese have a government that mobilizes public and private capitalism, public and private enterprises to achieve priority goals. Here are the three goals they've achieved you might want to think about. Number one, growth in total output called GDP. How fast does the growth in the total output of goods and services, how fast does it grow? For the last 25 years, the average annual growth of GDP in China has been between 6 and 9%. Over the exact same 25 years, the annual average growth of GDP in the United States has been between 2 and 3%. Do you understand the Chinese, for a quarter of a century, have produced economic growth three times as fast as the United States? Of course they're catching up. Of course, simply drawing the the, the line of the graph means that before this decade is over, the largest economy in the world will be China, not the United States. Okay, here's the second priority, real wages. What happens to the average wage in money that a, a Chinese worker is paid relative to the prices he or she has to pay at the store? That's what we call the real wage, the money wage adjusted for the cost of living. In the United States over the last 25 years, the real wage has moved very, very little, less than one half of 1% per year. We have a stagnant real wage. By the way, that's one of the reasons the white male working class is as upset as it is. Over the same 25 years, get ready now, the real wage of the average Chinese worker has quadrupled. This is not a contest. The contest is over. It's only now the results of who won and who lost. And therefore, no one should have been surprised by the last of my three. COVID. COVID. Let's see. The population of the United States is 330 million. The population of China, somewhere between 1.3 and 1.4 billion people. So roughly, there are four times more Chinese than there are Americans. In China, the death toll from COVID is between seven and 8,000 people died. In the United States, 700,000 people died. 
China was prepared and able to cope. And the United States, a rich country with a highly developed medical system, wasn't prepared and still cannot cope. Folks, you have to be really blind not to see that the American empire isn't what it was. It's peaked. It's over. The last three wars that this country has seriously pursued, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq, and the United States was defeated in every one of them by some of the poorest countries on this planet. Now, I could go on, but you get the picture. And you live in a society that is desperate not to get the picture. And here's my fear, because your question is spot on. My fear is that either the division inside the United States coming from a capitalism that does not know how to stop itself anymore and keeps making itself more and more unequal, or a clash with China. Either or both of those are, for me, the scariest possible scenarios which would make all the rest of the discussion about capitalism and socialism take a back seat. I want to go to another a question. I don't want to go too long. Um, so we, might, we may not get to all the questions today. Sorry about that, but we do have a, a stop point. One of the, the uh, title that I put for today uh, Rick was, is the sun setting on the American empire? So I'm glad you took it yeah, on. Yeah. Uh, Mary McDevitt, you have a question? Uh, yes, I do. I just, uh, first of all, like to say I really um, enjoyed your presentation. A lot to uh, think about. But uh, I'm a retired physician, so naturally I'm interested in healthcare and the uh, inequalities in healthcare, which certainly has come from um, uh, COVID, it's been accentuated. We are striving here in California to have a single payer system. And I think the thing that would really end inequality if we were able to get that is that there would no, no longer be any Medi-Cal patients. Every patient would have the same healthcare card as anyone else in the state. And I just uh, would like to ask if you think we could be successful in that here in California, would uh, that help the dire situation we're in? It absolutely would help. It would cement California's great reputation as the place where things happen before the rest of the country catches on to how and why they would be a good thing. Uh, and there are efforts all around the country, as I'm sure you know, to mm -hmm. move in that direction. Uh, l let me answer a little bit again with a story. Uh, I was a visiting professor at the University of Paris, number one, which used to be called the Sorbonne. It's in the, in the heart of downtown Paris, if you know uh, the city at all. Mm -hmm. um, in that uh, time that I was a, a professor teaching there, I was part of the uh, medical system. If you teach a certain number of months, then you automatically get the medical card. And the money is taken, a certain amount of money is taken out of your paycheck uh, for your, what you have to contribute to the national health. Um, 
I got uh, what I thought was strep throat uh, while I was there teaching. And I went in the, to the local doctor that near where I lived. And I, all I did was give him the card. There was no secretary. There were no clerks. Everything that was relevant about my personal history was on the card. This was years ago. And he stuck the card. The doctor stuck the card in the machine. Up comes my entire history. He then tells me I have to go get a swab in my throat to test for the uh, the strep throat. And that's in a, a, a laboratory, they call them there. Um, and it was down the street. And I went there. And again, no secretary, no clerk. A person comes out, gives me the test. And I'm informed a couple of days later. And luckily, I didn't have it. But I started asking questions to these people. And I learned very quickly why the United States spends more on health care than any other advanced country. By the way, roughly twice the percentage of GDP paid in America compared to the, to the people in France. Um, they don't have all this record keeping. They don't have an army of medical people fighting with insurance representatives about every bill that can be argued about or debated or 27 degrees of permission. None of that. You are uh, on the medical system in France when you're born and you go off it when you die. And whether you're employed or not makes no difference. Your access to health care is guaranteed, et cetera, et cetera. For wealthy people, there is a private system on top of the national health. And if you want, you can buy that. It's expensive. Uh, but the basic care, which is what most of the people I know, including professors at the university, rely on is, is by everybody I ever spoke to, uh, very, very acceptable. And indeed, something that in France, as in every country, even England, is untouchable politically. Any conservative in France, even um, any right winger like uh, Marina Le Pen, uh, people like that, would never dare attack the national health system because you would lose the election the next day because it is a, a jealously guarded asset for people that they know they will never be bankrupted personally by a medical expense that they are covered, that the people closest to them are covered. It changes the life in a society. It helps make European societies have a different way of interacting with one another, that they're not liable to the kind of disaster that un unmakeable medical expenses mean to Americans. So, yes, I take my hat off to your effort I'm hoping that California will be uh, a move in the direction. And as an economist, I have to tell you that we live in an economic system in which four industries have concocted what we call uh, a group monopoly. And by that, I mean the doctors, the hospitals, the medical insurers, and the drug and device makers. Those four industries together operate a monopoly, forcing the costs and prices of what they do to be significantly higher than they are anywhere else in the advanced world, accounting for why we as a country spend such a larger percentage of our gross income on health care, and we don't have the best outcomes 
not even not even near that. We are mediocre. The last four years in which the our longevity has been reduced are just the tip of the iceberg of of a quality of outcome in healthcare that means we are spending more than everybody else, but not doing at all better than everybody else. And if you weren't in a monopoly, that would not be a sustainable situation. Really? Um, yeah, we're almost out of time, but Mike, you have your hand up? Well, yeah, no, I just want to say it was just, I mean, it was an incredible uh, presentation. I mean, um, <laughs> you're, I don't have to say your passion is just, is just over the, is out the roof. But, um, you know, I just did want to ask, not, not you to have even time to answer this, but I was curious. You said the last 10 years for you, obviously, right. and I understand what you're saying. It's been a lot better. But, and, and you say, and, and I agree with so much, so much of what you said, of course. But you say in the last, uh, that all those four people that got together said that this is absolutely the worst time in American history. And I understand that. I'd like to know at some point why the markets keep going up for the last 12 years they just keep going up and up and up and up for the last 12 years if this is the worst time in history i'm curious as to why that is and also how do we get out of the 20 million dollar uh, debt how is it even possible and is what you're saying also i'm sorry to throw it all in marxism is marxism or, or socialism i mean is are you saying that is the answer and you're trying to we're trying to create a world that's more Marxist, more socialist. I know that's a lot to throw out, but anyway, thanks. Yeah, it, <laughs> it is. I don't even know quite where to start. Yes, I, I certainly want to I'll start, start at the end. I want to put my cards on the table. None of you should have any doubt. I think the human race can do better than capitalism. I'm a, a slightly ashamed that we haven't already done that, and I'm hoping that we do it soon. So, yeah, absolutely, I am not. Uh, neutral here. I am not uh, nonpartisan or anything. I'm partisan. Absolutely. Uh, uh, number one. Now about the market. Really good question. What is it about the market that makes it go up? And I think there are basically three things that explain why in a desperately troubled economy, the market keeps going up in no particular order. Number one, the market is a place where all due respect to any of you in the room uh, here, where really rich people play. You should know that really only the top 10% of the American people own about 80 to 90% of the shares. So we're talking about the rich in America. And the rich are the ones for whom capitalism has been working really pretty well. They have the money, so they go into the stock market. They bid up the price of stocks, so they feel richer, and they are, than they were before. So they can take more of their cash and chuck it into the market, which they are prone to do because it's been working real well for quite a while now. So that's one. Number two, a record number of American companies have left the United States over the last 25 or 30 years, and that's not stopping. I'll give you an example. You've been reading, I hope, about the record strikes that are going on. Nabisco, Kellogg, John Deere, and, and others. Those are the ones that got a lot of attention, but there are others. Um, America, and by the way, those, many of those strikes are strikes in which the company has threatened the workers, if you don't accept this, that, or whatever we're doing, we're going to move more production to Mexico in particular. But it doesn't really matter. It could be anywhere in the world. All of that is going on. And the reason for that, nobody should have any doubt about. It's more 
profitable. Profitable. It's more profitable to produce in China, which is a number one destination, or India, or Brazil, or Mexico, or a whole host of other places. And so they've been going there. And they've been making a ton of money because the wages there are much, much lower. So much lower that it's still more profitable, despite having to pay for the transportation of what is now made in China to bring it all the way back so it can be sold in a store in downtown Napa or Sonoma or wherever else. It's being sold. So they're doing that more and more. And that's American companies whose profit is going up because they've been given a spectacular gift. And the gift is not from the United States. The gift is actually from China. China has said, come here. We'll give you cheap labor. We'll give you a skilled, educated, docile, disciplined labor force. And we'll help you out in 27 different ways. This was an offer that was spectacular. And the business community responded. It took courage for the first company to shut their factory in Cincinnati and move it to Shanghai. But when the competitors realized how much extra profit they were getting, they all joined. And they've all been doing it, and they're continuing. So that's higher profits that show up in the attractive dividends these companies can pay and in the growth that they can invest in. Then there's a third factor that's just as important. The major way the United States government has handled the three crises in the 21st century that I told you about is what we call monetary policy. Basically, what they do is they print money. You know, the Federal Reserve has the legal right to do that. It can create money. All it takes for, for years, was my classmate, Janet Yellen, at the head of the Federal Reserve, convincing half a dozen older gentlemen and ladies that we should boost the economy by printing up another couple hundred billion. And everybody interrupted their cocktails, said yes, and that was it. That's all it takes. That's legal, by the way. There's, everything I'm describing is the way it's supposed to work. Well, here was the problem. As American mass of people became less and less able to buy things, because now their wages weren't going up, and they had borrowed more than they can carry as debt. Remember, we've had 40 years of mortgage debt, car payment debt, credit card debt, and the latest one, student debt. Americans are drowning in debt, and they can't buy. So the extra money pumped in by the Federal Reserve didn't go into expanding the factories, expand because you couldn't sell the stuff you were producing already. The purchasing power of the United States wasn't there. So where did the money go? The only place that money could earn well was not in producing goods and services. It was in going into the stock market. Buy a ton of stocks, and hope that two, three months from now, someone just like you will be getting that new money from the Federal Reserve and will buy those shares from you at a higher price, hoping to do the same thing with a third gentleman two months later. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you put all these things together and you have a stock market that celebrates that there seems to be no end to this process. Whenever that happens in economics, very, this story, as the comedian says, does not end well. 
This is a story of self-delusion about a ball that goes up and never comes down. When it comes down, it will it will do a wrecking job that will make 1929 or the or September of 2008 or March of 2020 remind us of what can happen. Only now with a real competitor and a Europe, and I haven't had the time to go in, a Europe deciding which way to go. France and Germany, countries I know real well, I've spoken those languages since I've been a child. France and Germany, the big discussion is whether to go with the U.S. or to go with China. That's what they're talking about. The automatic lining up with the U.S., that's over. That was over already five years ago. But the effrontery of Mr. Trump took it right over the edge. And Mr. Biden doesn't seem to get it, so he's not fixing it, if it's even fixable. Yeah, we have the United Kingdom. China has Russia. But the rest of Europe is trying to figure out where to go. And the Germans, they're for sure not going to go with the United States. They cannot afford to be caught in the middle between the United States and, and China. And the future is China. The American business points the way. American businesses go to China. When you ask them, and there are surveys, and the results of surveys are written in the Harvard Business Review or any of the other places you go to. They go for two reasons. The labor is incredibly cheap, and we can make a lot of money. But there's a second reason Americans don't want to think about. It's the market. The growth of the market inside China is the fastest growing market on earth. And every graduate of an MBA program at a business school knows that the successful company is the one laser focused on where the market is growing so that you can grow providing a growing market. China, having paid their workers more money, has created an incredible growing market for every conceivable kind of consumer good and capital good. So the companies are going to China not only to hire the workers, but to sell. General Motors produces more cars for the Chinese market than they do for the United States. I mean, how many more pieces of statistic like that will you need to get your head around the changes that are agitating just below the surface? This has been extraordinary. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sure I've left out parts of your question. But those are the two that I could. Focus. Well, I've told the others that there wouldn't be time for their questions because we're we're sure. running out of time. And I so appreciate the time you've taken with us and and the detail in which you've answered the questions. It's extraordinary, and your energy is just incredible. It's very exciting. Good, good. Well, as I told you before, I you only get this because of the gratification I get from the quantity and the quality of the audiences that I am treated to. Um, it, is, it is incredibly gratifying. And I'm not, I'm not the kind of person who would say that, if, you know, I'm not being polite or, or anything else. I'm telling you how the world uh, presents itself uh, to me. And while I'm tired, I'm also terribly pleased that I had five occasions today in front of TV cameras and everything else to make these kinds of arguments. 
And unlike what I did most of my career as a professor, where I had to dance around the things I had to say so that the language I used wouldn't freak out my audiences, I don't have to do any of that. Whatever fluidity you felt or heard in my delivery, I don't have to choose my words. I can say it the way I see it and feel it, and the audience gets it. They may not agree, but they get it. This is not scary. This is not what it was most of my life. Well, this it's been so exciting to hear it, and I can't wait, Rick, until we can invite you back in person in Sonoma and have you stay here a few days. All right, I will. And I can tell you, when, when I finished my stint at Yale, my wife and I, we had a long conversation. And part of us wanted to go and live in San Francisco area. In the oh, Bay that area. would be so exciting. We, al- we almost did. Then we stayed in the East where we both came from. Uh, but if there was any other place in this country that we were living in, it would be up there with you. When we go to San Francisco, a trip up into Sonoma or Napa is obligatory. My father was born in France, and therefore wine has an absurdly overdeveloped meaning in my life. And so the ability to have that and the ocean, and I mean, it really is a remarkable place to live. Yeah, and wonderful people that you would connect with here, too. So All we right, hope folks. you reconsider it. I will. Bye, I will. And thank, thank you. you thank you again. Thank you. Unbelievable. Good Lord. Yeah, well, let's let's sit in the back of the room and talk for a few minutes. This was really exciting. I posted both his YouTube channels because that certainly wasn't enough of him. What did you say? I said I posted both links to both his YouTube channels because that certainly wasn't enough Richard Wolf for if you're anything like I was. But how come the name? What's his name? Uh, so Zoom basically, so when you open a link, it, it will pull the last credentials from your web.